Welcome back to the Healthcare Insight Podcast. I'm Eric Silverman. And I'm Jane Crosby. Thanks for coming back, everyone. We uh, we had a great interview this week with Matthew Sweezy, who he's a cool guy. He's into all, you know, he had a, a pretty cool podcast. He's written a, a couple of books. The most recent one is The Context Marketing Revolution um, in kind of a testament to the COVID world we're living in from a connection standpoint. I learned during the podcast that Matthew and I both live here in Charleston, South Carolina, even though we were connecting via Zoom as if we were worlds apart. And he's got a got a kind of cool, cool story uh, behind him and, and also is a guy who pursues a lot of really interesting adventures. And if you stick with it to the end, uh, you'll get to hear what he's got planned next for his grand adventure that he's kicking off here in the next couple of weeks. But but the big big picture was context marketing, right, Jane? What What is it? So context marketing, the way I understand it, is meeting people where they're at with information that is relevant to their life at that moment. So not necessarily thinking about uh, what you as a marketer want people to buy, but thinking about what they need to either improve their health and wellness, find a gift for their kid for Christmas, whatever that might be, providing them information and resources in the appropriate context of what they're looking for and what they're trying to engage with. And that idea extends to the channels you use, the messages you use, and the products that you're actually promoting, and then what you want people to do next. So this has like great connectivity to the interview you did last week with Amanda Todorovich from Cleveland Clinic, where you know she's talking about how content really has an ability to meet somebody in their moment of need or or their moment of frustration, right? And so being able to serve up content that is really relevant to an individual's healthcare situation, that's where some of their best performing content uh, comes from and, and, and where they see some of the best opportunities. And, and for context marketing, like Matthew Sweezy talks about, it got me thinking about a, a risk, I guess, that, that I perceive. So I've got I've got two kids, Owen's 10, Mason's seven, and they're always really challenging me with with ideas and they're into really cool stuff and that's great. But 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 this context marketing thing got me thinking about two examples from Owen. So Owen Owen's building this treehouse and he's you know talking to me a lot about solar power. And he wants these solar panels and he's got this inverter and then he can do his tools and stuff in the treehouse and and so like all of a sudden I find myself like learning tons about solar energy and you know grid tie inverters and like what like Dominion Energy in South Carolina will do if I want to kind of plug into the grid and da 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 super interesting stuff, right? Um but I've noticed like it it's following me, right? And 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 it's starting to crowd out a bunch of other stuff. So YouTube and Instagram, like I'm seeing like all this stuff about about solar energy, like at the expense of of other things that I might see. Like that context is true. And yes, I'm super interested in it, but it it's got this vortex effect, right? And so you layer that on one other thing, which is Owen's Owen then Mason's into this too. They've they've got the busted bros woodworking 
you know, business that they started in the garage and they make, you know, these incredible slippers that are made out of um, two by four planks that, you know, they're not very flexible and you can't sneak up on anybody, but they look really cool. And uh, so anyway, so I've been looking at woodworking stuff for the <laughs> for the kids. And like, you would think that that's completely what I'm into, right? Like all I do is woodworking and solar panel engineering, but but it's kind of at the expense of everything else that would otherwise be in in the channels that I'm I'm orbiting in. And so what's a marketer to do? You know, there's this risk that we that we kind of crowd everything else out if we're trying to serve only context, right? Yeah, absolutely. Eric, your 10-year-old does operate at a much higher intellectual level than my husband and I were still getting followed around by FanDuel ads and archery equipment in this house. But it's an interesting point. And it's it's funny that I think marketers today are throwing so much money at retargeting and new tools and new trends um, and not necessarily thinking through how people actually encounter that content. Uh, more Sometimes less can be more. And I think one of Matthew Sweezy's pieces of advice to healthcare marketers is one that I really appreciate and that one of the keys to being successful with content marketing is just being creative um, and finding new ways to solve new problems. The answer is not always going to be the obvious one, which is spend more money on retargeting to follow someone around with woodworking ads. Um, it can be to get creative and think about how to most effectively reach the people who are looking for that information through the right channels. Um, so I think that piece is really interesting. And in 2020, I think sometimes we're losing sight of creativity and marketing and focusing too much on the trends and the numbers and what we think might perform well. Um, and it gets back to really being there for the consumer in the moment that they want to hear from you, not the moment that you want to reach them because it's trackable or because it's new or because you'll have fun running that campaign. Um, I think it is really important to think first about customer and how to creatively reach them. Yeah, it's great perspective, and it's a great interview with uh, with Matthew. I was really excited that we both got to got to talk with him, and, and really excited that he joined the podcast. Probably just a quick note for our listeners: some of the audio is a little bit crunchy, I think, as we go through the uh, the interview with with Matthew. Um, but he's a really smart guy; lots of great perspective to add. So, so definitely worth uh, worth a listen, even if uh, if the audio crunches up a little bit on us. Um, with no further ado. Let's turn it over to Matthew Sweezy to give us some perspective on context marketing. I'm Eric Silverman from True North, joined by my colleague, Jane. Hi, Matthew. Thank you so much. I'm really excited for this conversation. You've put some great content out over the past few years and a couple of months in particular. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Sure. No so, Thanks for inviting me. You bet. Matthew Sweezy, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> so, so we'll talk about um, all kinds of things, but I, you know, I'm excited to cover your podcast, the the nine part series. I'm really excited to talk about context marketing um, from your point of view. Um, you also wrote the book on marketing automation. We can talk about that. Um, maybe just to kind of ease into it a little bit, though. You working on anything really exciting? You want to share with us? Uh, always. Uh, I work on a lot of secret projects kind of underground at Salesforce. Uh, right now, kind of working on some new ideas of thought leadership. 
Um, so that's kind of fun. Um, but yeah, just always trying to figure out what the future looks like and help brands uh, kind of get there. Gotcha. Good stuff. Yeah. So, so you're not going to let us in on the secret, secret bunker, top secret recipe for our, for our first podcast episode with you, huh? Not just, not just, you guys have to keep listening to find out. Yeah. Okay. Good, good, good. Well, so, so maybe on that, you know, you've got a, a highly awarded podcast, the Electronic Propaganda Society, the, the nine part series. I'd love to just maybe start talk a little bit about about that if you will tell tell us and our listeners sure. about the electronic propaganda society electric electronic propaganda society don't try to say that too many times too fast it was really a passion project that i started um with the goal of really pushing the bounds in a couple of ways for marketers one was to push the bounds of what could a b2b podcast sound like and be like um, the other was to push the bounds on thought leadership content and really kind of bring out brand new perspectives on ideas that people really haven't um, ever considered. And then for me, just to have a lot of fun making it. I'm, I'm a creator. Um, you know, we just uh, just talked about I'm shooting from my office, which is also my our studio. So I, I pedal around and, and like to make stuff. So that was really the point of it. And really the, the big heart of it was it, it asked the question and answers the question. Uh, why is marketing failing? Um, and, and that's really kind of what it dives into and looks at historical reasons of what we think about marketing, um, kind of large scale macroeconomic trends of where it's going. Um, and it was, it was just a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, wait, I think I was awarded like six different creative awards and a bunch of different podcast awards. It was a lot of fun. So this may fall into the category of, well, you got to listen if you want to know. But what happened on June 24th, 2009? Yes, it's super nerdy. Uh, so June 24, 2009 is a, is a day that I arrived at mathematically. Um, and what that day signifies is it signifies the entrance into a new media era. Now, if you're not super nerdy, which I imagine a lot of us didn't go to an MBA school for media theory or anything like this, you really need to understand that media theory is, is the idea that the media environment dictates a lot of human behavior. And if we are marketers really wanting to do a couple of things, we want to, one, be able to motivate people, which means we need to know how they're motivated and how they make decisions. The other is we want to break through the noise to reach them, which means that we need to know what the noise is comprised of and how do we actually break through it. So when you go down that path, you go down this concept of media study. And when you go down media study and you start to learn about media environments, you realize that all things are changed when we move into a new media environment, meaning how people make decisions changes, um, the way that we connect to brands changes, literally life changes. Um, think about a really simple example, right? The world before the printing press, the world after the printing press. Literally, the printing press takes the world out of the dark ages and into the age of enlightenment. And all that it really did was just simply allow us to create more media. And it wasn't even that much more, right? How, how many times can you pull a press handle and make a new book, um, right? But that's what, that's what that did. Um, so if we can just kind of think about that. So that day, June 24, 2009, is the day specifically that consumers became the largest creators of content in the world and will ever forbe that until for time moving forward. The number two largest creator of noise in our current marketplace is actually personal devices. Brands come in third uh, in terms of total volume of noise, and they actually only create one third of the total noise that's actually out there in existence. When we talk about how do we break through it, how does that change consumer decision-making processes, we really need to start at that, at that angle first. You know, I realize this may start to tread into some of the other areas that, that we'll talk about. But in your view, for marketers, what's the biggest implication um, for marketers generating content in the new normal of a consumer-generated content world? Yeah, so two, two ways to answer that. First off, it's not just that consumers, that it's a consumer-generated world, right? That is 
a signal, but really what we need to realize from that is it's about the connectivity that people have between themselves, how they make decisions, how they want to connect, and the ability for them to do things in new ways. So the old ways that we would think about doing things as marketers would, we would sit in a room, we'd come up with the most creative idea to put something out there, and we would force it out onto a marketplace. Now in the world, we must learn that we must work with our marketplace to co-create things to get them out there. That's going to get them, one, that's going to create the demand for the thing in the first place, two, that's going to then make sure that it has enough legs to then survive in this new ecosystem because it's supported by other people. Um, So we have to change the way that we think about our relationship to our marketplace and our audience. Rather than us just creating things for them, we must find ways of bringing them in the process and co-creating with them in this new world. I mean, if you look at anything that's like really trending on social media, right? You know, you've got influencers, you've got user-generated content, you've got challenges on TikTok. All of it is co-created ideas. Communities, we just ran that, you know, the the state of marketing, we run that report every year here at Salesforce and the brand new report that we just published in 2020, we asked marketers, what are the number one channels by customer journey stage? Four of the six stages are human-to-human methodologies. Influencer marketing and communities are four of the six six stages. So we need to rethink about what we do and how we do it. Good stuff. Your newest book, The Context Marketing Revolution, How to Motivate Buyers in the Age of Infinite Media, it talks about this specifically, right? The idea of moving as marketers away from um, just getting people to buy our products products to, to partnering with them uh, to both of our mutual objectives. Maybe expand on that a little bit, if you will. Yeah, so essentially it talks about what does the future of marketing look like and, and what, what what must we do to grow brands and what is the role of marketing in a brand in the future? Uh, the traditional idea of, of marketing was that it was there to tell the world about the products that we made, right? And that was, you know, we kind of just walked through the scenario of where now marketing takes on a new role, scope, and function. In fact, when we look at what is the difference between a high-performing marketing organization and everyone else, the number one key differentiation is that there is executive buy-in to a new idea of marketing, where the actual role, scope, and function of marketing shifts from the, the department that just tells the world about the product that you've created to the owners and sustainers of all experiences across the customer journey, right? So we're all very familiar with the need to focus on experience. Um, we're all very familiar with these concepts, but really tying them all together and making sure that we understand that it's a journey and optimizing the experiences across the journey is the way that modern brands grow. And that's the modern concept of marketing. This question's a little bit out of order, but I want to make sure that I ask it. So what is context marketing? What, what would you want our listeners to take away from the idea of context marketing? Yeah, so context marketing really, first off, there's, there's three words to the first part of the book, the context marketing revolution, right? So context is really when we talk about this new environment, that's the new foundational ground of this environment is context, right? So just think about how the media environment operates and it operates for context. A couple of basic examples. We could all go to Google and ask the exact same question. Each one of us is going to receive a different set of answers based on our personal context. So we must realize is in this world of infinite media, humans can't manage that by themselves. So there's a layer in between us and the answer, which is artificial intelligence. That AI is completely attuned to the context of the moment. So meaning that up, if we want to break through, we won't unless we are contextual to that individual at that moment. Um, you can then apply the same concept to social media feeds. And if you look at a social media feed, you notice the timestamps on posts. It's not a chronological feed of all the things that your friends have done. Rather, it's a contextual feed. You may see posts that are, you know, someone posted on something that was a post from three years ago. And that may then pop back up, not because it was timely, but because it was contextual to you because you've already engaged. 
You then take that to the extreme and look at new platforms like TikTok. TikTok doesn't even have a timestamp on any of its content because it does not want you to know when it was published so that it can resort into a contextual order whenever it wants. Um, so we must understand that's what the foundation of the modern environment is. That's why you use the term context. To reach context, that also then means understanding what is the value of the individual at the moment. And then that means that we must attune to that individual's value at the moment. And this really gets into a lot of deep conversations. We can talk about different examples, but we must understand what the person's problem is at that key moment of truth and then solve that problem. This is really when you start getting into like neuroscience and you start getting to, you know, really digging deep with the customer to understanding what their need is and realizing that through that customer research, traditional UX, CX work, that we really understand what the value is that they're trying to ascertain at that moment. And we can then deliver that value. And when we do that, that then creates the most growth and the most or the best returns from a marketing standpoint. It's not sitting back and saying, how creative can we be to solve this problem? It's first saying, how well can we understand the context of that moment? And then how well can we help them get that value out of that moment? Mm -hmm. That's really interesting, Matthew. One of the things that Eric can attest to about me is that I am not a very philosophical marketer. I'm a super practical marketer. And so for our listeners who are a little bit more like me, uh, how do you get to context? Are there any tools or specific data points or analytics solutions that you would recommend our, our listeners and our customers um, invest in or pay attention to as they try to reach context, especially in the context of healthcare marketing? Sure. Good question. Um, so, yes, yeah, so pretty much all aspects of how we think about our jobs have to transform the way that we do our jobs. So really, the concept of agile has to be completely embraced where we're not sitting back and coming up with a big campaign and launching a big campaign, whether our organizations are structured around testing and iterating rapidly. Um, and that's the only way that we're going to get to context. When you start to then go down that path, you then start to think about research in different ways. So we're constantly testing and learning. Um, and then we're also then bringing in customer interviews constantly. So here's a really good example of when we talk about an interview and how these get used. We're all very familiar with traditional market research, whether it be qualitative or quantitative. But if I ask marketers, and I've done this for years, and I'll ask them all over the world, I'll say, listen, so you've created content, and or whatever it may be. It may be a video, maybe an asset, maybe a web page. And someone's engaged with it. We then sit back and we look at a metric, such as an engagement metric, and then we judge our results based on an engagement metric. So for example, we had 50 downloads. Well, that's great. We had downloads, right? But the reality is, is here's the problem. Just because they downloaded it, that's not the full experience. We have no clue how they felt about that experience after the fact. We only know they took the action. We don't know what the outcome was. So if we don't actually follow up and ask them, how was that experience? We actually may be perpetuating a bad experience. And here's what the data suggests. 71% of B2B buyers have been disappointed with the content that they downloaded from a brand. 25% have been so disappointed that they will never engage with that brand ever again. As we move forward in time, once again, the infinite content era, there's more and more and more content. So if we, people don't have to engage with us, they have infinite other options. So if we're not following up and asking, what was that experience? Did it meet your expectations? We don't actually know the answer to that question. So we may actually be fulfilled, like be, you know, populating a bad experience for other people. So less than 1% of marketers do that. Here's the problem. We would fire any product manager who never asked people what they thought of the experience after the fact. But we as marketers don't think about it that way, but we have to. If experience is a product, we must deal with it like a product. How do you do that in the B2C space? I, I'm curious how, as marketers, when you're 
uh, when you have an audience of a million people, if you have, if you're a major healthcare brand in Dallas, for example, how do you get that feedback? Is it more data driven? Is it surveys? Any feedback around how B two C marketers can generate that feedback? I'm sure many of our listeners will think, "Man, I wish I could get that feedback, but I really don't know how." It seems like a huge lift. Yeah, there's lots of different methodologies that you can use, um, whether it be some type of digital format, such as a survey that pops up and says, hey, you know, we've all got the, you know, the MPS survey scores on our websites, asking those different types of questions. The other is just the understanding that you don't have to ask that many people, right? It's go back to the, in political science, it's called the milk test, right? You don't need to take 100 sips of the milk to know that the milk is bad, right? You can simply open it and take a sip and realize the milk's bad. What that means is a small sample set can really tell you if you're correct or not. So you can literally pick up the telephone and call people who've engaged and ask them about this specific experience or reach out to them whatever other methodology that you have. And you only need to ask a certain number of people. And it's really small, like six. You can ask six people. And if all six people say there's a problem, or if none of those six people say there's a problem, there's probably no problem. If all six people are happy, everyone's probably happy. Um, so, because it's a pretty wide, you know, it's, you're not just assembling a specific use group of analysis. So that's, you know, basic concept methodology. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be a massive thing. But then the second thing would be the question of, or we have a thousand different experiences, what experiences do we need to focus on? Those would then would be the key moments of truth, right? So identify what your key moments of truths are across the customer journey and start with those experiences. And as time allows, expand outward from there. Um, the more that you can get. But the closer you are to a moment of truth, the more important that experience is. So this isn't your first book, right? You also happen to write the book, Matthew, on marketing automation platforms. We see a lot of our clients investing in marketing automation platforms and working hard to, to make those work very well for them and, and for the consumers that, are, that they're engaging. Talk to us about your view on kind of what's the, the number one ingredient that a marketer needs to consider in a successful implementation or optimization of their marketing automation platforms. Uh, imagination. That's the number one thing. So here's the problem. So let, let's take two steps back. So I was employee number 13 in a small company called Pardot. Uh, we were a startup at that stage. Uh, we obviously then grew. And now we're Salesforce's marketing automation platform. So I wrote marketing automation for dummies back in 2013. Uh, Wiley, the dummies corporation, asked me to write that for them. Here's the problem that I've seen. So I've worked with, at this time, hundreds or thousands of companies to implement marketing automation. There's two different types of people. There are those that say, I'm going to get automation to automate all the things I'm currently doing, which means they just simply take all their ideas and they automate them. Those companies never see the ROI out of automation. They actually get very frustrated. And what they've done is they've usually created spam cannons and they've usually automated bad best practices. Those companies that saw marketing automation as a new way to do new things were the ones that succeeded and saw massive returns. So it's not anything other than being able to say, hey, listen, the way that I've done things in the past, that's cool, but I have a new way of doing new things. If I'm not able to find new ways to do new things, I will not succeed. So imagination is the key foundation. If you're going to try something, it's you have to understand it's not just a way to automate things you've always done. It's opening a door to new possibilities you never had before. You need to then experience and then learn what new possibilities could be. Um, so I spent the entire book of Marketing Automation for Dummies is helping people think about how do we think through these new ideas? How do I come up with new ideas to test and try rather than just automating old methods? You know, you obviously have worked with some of the world's biggest brands. And there's a, a pretty good hit list even in, in your bio on, on your website. When you think about 
companies that are doing things really well, either in the marketing automation space or particularly in the context marketing space. Maybe tell us a story of somebody that, that you like what they've achieved and, and how they're achieving it. Oh, my, one of my favorites is Lego. Um, so I think everyone can understand Lego. We all have a love for Lego, whether it's, you know, you have a connection to Lego, whether you play with them or you stepped on one and you remember how painful that was. There's some kind of connection. That was a joke from my childhood because my father would always say, we had the shag carpet and so the little Legos would always get lost in the shag carpet, whatever. 80s child. So Lego had a problem. People were coming to the website and we all know Lego, right? And there's a lot of options. So a lot of people were leaving without purchasing something. Pretty standard scenario for any retailer or anyone going to a website. Traditional marketing logic would have said, what we're going to do is we're going to create a retargeting campaign. And we're going to retarget anybody that came and looked at a product and we're going to retarget them with that product that they looked at. Instead, what they did is said, we're going to try something different. We're going to go down a contextual route. What they did is they really tried to understand why people were leaving first. And so what they found was people were leaving because there were too many options and they didn't know what the perfect gift was. So they just didn't buy a gift. So the solution was, how do we help them find the perfect gift? And what they did was a very contextual campaign called Ralph, the perfect gift buying bot. Now, I love this example because it combines a lot of really modern methods. One is chatbots. Right. The other is messaging applications. Right. So what they did is they created an ad and it's just chat file. And the ad said, would you like to engage with Ralph, the perfect gift buying bot? He's here to help you find the perfect gift this holiday season. What it did was it didn't take you back to Lego's website. It took you right into Facebook Messenger. And then you had a conversation with Ralph and Ralph asked you questions like, who are you buying for? Is this a boy or a girl? What are their interests? Um, and then just started to check inventory in real time while it's asking these questions and then starting to make product suggestions. They may like this. They may like this. Average conversation with the chatbot was three minutes. Average order size from the chatbot is twice the average order size on the website. And Ralph accounts for 25% of all online holiday sales for the brand in 2017. Right? It's a massive, massive win. And it's not anything like traditional marketing logic would have suggested. Um, but it totally beat things because it, one, really understood what was the value the person was trying to achieve and then met them in that moment um, and helped them solve that goal. Great stuff. Yeah, that's a great story. I've got a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old, and they both just went through this Lego experience of deciding what they wanted to build and then going and doing the individual park list so they could build up and create what they wanted to on the Lego website and ordering pieces. Kind of like almost the opposite of the Ralph experience, but man, they were super into it. And now I know how I'm buying Legos for Christmas next year. It's Ralph. The AI piece of the puzzle it takes me back to the electronic propaganda podcast series. And, you know, there's an assertion in there that the consumer is no longer in charge, that artificial intelligence is. And and you've spoken to this a little bit in our, our time together today. But, you know, at first blush, it's a scary, a scary thought. And, and you've offered some great perspective on what it means for marketers. Talk to us a little bit about your view on what it means for consumers and how all of us as consumers interact with brands and, and what what opportunities we have to take away from this major, major shift. Yeah. So when I say the consumer is in control, I just want to be real clear. The consumer is in control of their actions. They're not in control of what media they see. Artificial intelligence is in control of all digital things that we touch from now moving forward. Because if the name of the game is experience, AI is going to be able to create the best experience. No human will be able to touch that at scale. Right. So anything that we touch in a digital world is AI. So we would call that a mediated human, meaning any interaction between us and digital technology is mediated by artificial intelligence. What we then end up with is a post-AI consumer, 
which means that their world is dictated by artificial intelligence. What we need to take from that is just there, there's a pro and a con. The pro is, and it's a really funny scenario. If we ask somebody, do you like advertisements? Most people say, no, I hate advertisements. But there's a caveat. People will always say, I love the advertisements that got me to buy the thing I like, right? So there's, there's a funny little caveat. It's, I like ads when I end up buying the thing and it was helpful. Um, but I don't want it any other time. Artificial intelligence in the future is going to do radical cool things for us as consumers. It's going to hyper-personalize ads. I don't know if you've seen the David Beckham um, artificial intelligence, the malaria ad, where essentially they take David Beckham and David Beckham's trying to help you know, spread the message of let's get malaria off the planet. It's still a major killer. What they do is they take David Beckham, AI, deep fakes David Beckham, and it translates that message into infinite other languages instantaneously, right? So there's going to be cool ways that AI is going to change our lives. There's also new AI technology that's going to allow, essentially, when we start watching Netflix in the future, when we start to think about product placement, product placement is going to be an AI thing. It's not going to be on set. It's going to happen in post by artificial intelligence, which is going to open up a radical new world of what we see. We all may watch the same television show and all may see different billboard advertisements in the background. We all may see different product placements. The cars may all be different. Um, based on who we are, based on artificial intelligence. So it's a very different world that we're going to experience moving forward. Um, but it's not a scary world. I think it's just it's just different. Um, and we're going to need to understand that's when then privacy and data privacy really comes into play of how much we want people to know about us to how personalized we want things. Um, and then that's where it's going to trust is going to become into play. And we're going to be totally happy with giving up all of our data as long as we trust what people are going to do with it and as long as it's being used to do something that we're okay with. One of the things that's really interesting, Matthew, is that, you know, when I see ads on, especially on Instagram, oftentimes I find that it's for things I actually want, like new coffee solutions or clothes and shoes and that kind of stuff. What takeaways do you have for people who are selling something that no one wants, like healthcare or new bank or insurance? How do, how do those brands um, provide information and context? Well, it's not true. People want those things or else they would never buy them. Um, they're just not sexy things, right? They, they have limited context. Um, coffee has context in your life every day, right? At least every morning, if not multiple times a day, right? So there's greater context of someone being able to have that conversation with you. What we really need to pull from this is if people are looking to market something that is specific in that context of it's healthcare or it's insurance. There's two different paths they can go down. One is the point of need, which we'll be able to you be able to say, okay, we understand data, we understand intent, we understand when this is a topic of conversation. That's one conversation. The other is find better ways to tell stories that relate and get us back into contact. Um, so find better ways to have conversations about the value that this brings to their life. Find better ways to tell stories that aren't about why you need to buy my product, right? It's the whole concept going back to, um, if you go back to Zig Ziglar, he made the famous statement of sell the sizzle, not the steak. I think that was Ziglar. Um, it's the same concept, right? And the same thing in technology. Look at what Apple does versus what Samsung and other providers do. One talks about the features of here's the 5G phone and this is the X amount of pixels that you can get from this camera and this is the amount of data it can store. And the other is totally an experience, right? It's totally about the beauty, the sleekness, the experience. And they have totally different outcomes from a business. So even if it's an unsexy thing, you can find ways to relate to people in different ways. And it's two different ways. One is the immediate moment of need. And then two is then they have stories that then can get into the context of their life in different ways. And that's really what when we talk about context of the day. Like there's so many ways that we can find context to match with them. Um, one of the big things I talked about is purpose. And brands really need to understand this concept of what purpose is. 
And it's not just simply social justice initiatives. It's what is the purpose and how can we fulfill purpose in people's lives? And there's lots of different purposes, right? One of the easy ones is like, you could, I'm just spitballing here, but you know, I'm a very adventurous person. I do a lot of crazy things. It would be hilarious if an insurance company saw the last time I wrecked and commented on my wreck and be like, you know what, did you have insurance on that bike? I hope you did. Like that would be hilarious because all that's on public information, you know, right there. Like there's my injury, there's me in a sling, there's my broken bicycle, um, you know, but they didn't do that. But they could have. That would have been in context. One of the things I'd love to touch on before we run out of time together, and I realize we're, we're, we're getting close there. I'd love to hear your point of view on consumer behavior in a peri or post-COVID world. How is that showing up in your work? How are you seeing consumer behavior influenced? And maybe the second part of the question is, where do you see us on this continuum of what is either a return to normal or a new normal in terms of consumer behavior? Big questions. Um, the first is a whole lot easier than the second. The second is uncertain. No one's going to have an answer to that. I don't even want to give a guess, right? There's, there's lots of, every industry is different. Um, it, it, some guesses are three months. Some guesses are, you know, 48 months as to when that recovery will happen. It's going to be based upon geography. It's going to be based upon vertical of business. If you're selling pizza delivery, you didn't even have a recession. Um, if you're a fine dining restaurant, it may take you 48 months to come back. Right? So it's, it's just all over the board. Um, and as we move forward, it's even more uncertain. But there are things that we already know that consumers have changed and will change. Right. So there are a couple of basic things. Now, in this statement, I like to say that currently right now we're living in the future and tomorrow. Today's the future. Tomorrow's the past. So if you look at behavior that we're experiencing today, we're at a peak such as a couple of things for specifically telemedicine, um, e-commerce, uh, buy online, pick up in store, and food delivery. Um, the fifth is nesting, right? So those are all things that we know are going to stick. Video calls are going to stick. Telemedicine is going to stick. E-commerce is going to stick. Um, buy online, pick up in store experiences are going to stick. Uh, and then nesting is going to stick. Um, within that, we also know brand loyalties are very fluid at this point in time. I believe the statistic that just came out from McKinsey was 75% of consumers have bought something in a category that was not their primary choice or their primary vendor. Um, so we're seeing a lot of brands, there's a lot of fluidity for lots of different reasons. Either one, the supply chain was disrupted and that product wasn't on the shelf. That's a major factor. Or two, the person's financially stressed. So they've taken, taken a step down in the luxury ladder. So they're purchasing things that are less expensive. Um, so usually just one step down. You don't go from buying Gucci to buying, you know, the, the no-name brand at the, at the you know, no-name department store. You just go buy one thing lower. You know, just save a little bit of money. You don't completely cut all spending off. Um, that's usually what we see. So I think those are sticky behaviors. Um, in terms of percentage-wise, I think you're looking at a 15 to 30% increase in e-commerce. Um, buy online, pick up in store. It's going to be phenomenal. Um, I think they said from telemedicine, 76% of consumers that have tried it expect to do it again. They're hopeful to do it again. And the big thing on these is we need to reimagine what the future looks like, right? So we talk about experience, but a buddy of mine, his name's Joseph Pine. He wrote the book, The Experience Economy. They say it's not just experience. It's an experience that transforms someone. So look at these experiences and see how they transform someone. When they do, they're very sticky. Buy online, pick up in store. That transforms us from doing the work to being a manager of managing people to do that work for us, right? Telemedicine transforms me from having to physically waste time of getting in the car of no offense to all of you doctors, but I show up every time, 15 minutes ahead of time. You don't see me for a half hour until after my scheduled appointment. Why in the hell are you making me do that? Just call me when you're ready. 
And I'll answer the phone and we can have our telemedicine, right? 76% of consumers are doing that. Why? Because it's going to elevate them to save them more time and then put them back in control. So I think if we look at it from those standpoints, I think those are a lot of the behaviors that will stick. Great stuff. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that isn't driven by by questions that, that we had for you? <laughs> no, I mean, just um, thanks for listening. And if you want to like check out more of this stuff, you know, I've written a bunch of books, so go check those out or... Follow me on LinkedIn, I guess. I we can find you at MatthewSweezy.com, S-W-E-E-Z-E-Y, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, I didn't want to miss the opportunity before we parted ways. Um, your bio points out you're an avid climber, you're an avid surfer. You mentioned kind of adventure as a big part of your life. Well, tell us about your latest yeah. adventure. Latest adventure takes off in three weeks. I have one of those big adventure vans. Um, I'm taking off on a three-week uh, cross-country road trip. I'm going to go surf down the one, go hike half dome, um, go hang out a lot in Colorado, go my mountain bike down Moab. So just me and my bike and my surfboard and my van for three weeks on the road. So that's what's coming up next. Sounds like the the, the quarantine dream, Matthew. Hope you enjoy it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Thank you for making time for us today, Matthew Sweezy. Thank you. Cheers, guys.